Samuel Davies, Matthew Bridges, Augustus Toplady, Horatius, and Andrew Bonar were all hymn writers who wrote during a period of time that we call the Great Awakening. After the time of the Reformation, it was probably one of the greatest revival periods in the history of the church and has had more direct effect on American Christianity than any other revival historically, except for possibly the Second Great Awakening under Asahel Nettleton. But if you take your Trinity hymnal sometime and just look up the names of these men, and if you want them, just ask me and I'll give them, and then just take those hymns. It will be a tremendous lesson in the fundamentals of the faith, uh, one that will richly bless your soul as you learn to sing them. I uh, really appreciate our brother taking the time to notice for us John Newton. Before I turn to the Scripture to read this, uh, this evening, I'd like to just say a couple of things. One, I'd like to thank the Blue Ridge Bible Conference for asking me to speak to you this evening. I'll probably get loud enough, Alan, that you won't need that. Because that was my second point, is most people who have ever heard me preach before or know me know that I speak in two speeds. That's fast and faster. I will try to keep it slow tonight. And in two levels, that's loud and louder. So I will try to work on both of those as we are in this small quarters this evening. Also, one other thing, uh, or two other things actually, you have an outline in front of you. I'm an extemporaneous speaker, so they called me up and asked me to give you an outline. So you will see that probably that outline will be metamorphosizing in front of your eyes as I'm preaching this evening. It will grow, and I'm a good Puritan preacher, so my three points will suddenly take on the character of sub-points and sub-sub-points. Uh, I will try to be clear with those. And for the sake of those in my congregation who are here tonight, usually when I'm preaching to them, I'm wearing a jacket. And in our church, they usually take bets as to how soon that jacket's going to come off in the middle of the sermon, if it's going to come off five minutes after I start. So I wore my fanny pack tonight, so I'll be taking it off sometime during the uh, sermon so you guys can feel right at home and comfortable about deciding how long it's going to take me. If you would please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Psalms. I'm going to read two psalms to us this evening, Psalm 127, Psalm 128. Hear now the reading of God's Word. Except Jehovah build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except Jehovah keep the city, the watchman watches but in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to take rest late, to eat the bread of toil, for so he giveth unto his beloved sleep. Lo, children are a heritage of Jehovah, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. As arrows in the hand of a mighty man, so are the children of youth. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. They shall not be put to shame when they speak with their enemies in the gate. Blessed is everyone that feareth Jehovah, that walketh in his ways. For thou shalt eat the labor of thy hands. Happy shall thou be, and it shall be well with thee. Thy wife shall be as a fruitful vine in the innermost parts of thy house. Thy children, like olive plants, round about thy table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed that fears Jehovah. Jehovah bless thee out of Zion, and see thou the good of Jerusalem all the days of thy life. Yea, see thou thy children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Let us pray.
Our gracious Father and God, we do thank You for Your holy and wonderful Word. And we thank You for the opportunity once again to gather around Your Word. And Father, we beseech You that You would be pleased by Your Spirit to open Your Word to us, that You would speak to us this evening, Lord, that You would cause us to grow in Your glorious grace. Father, cause Your Word to be fruitful in our hearts and in our lives. Father, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in Thy sight. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've looked in your outline and you saw a title there that says, A Family Checkup. We come to a camp such as this to get away and spend time away from the hustle and bustle and all of the rat race that we're involved in day by day to come away and relax to come away and clear our minds of all that goes on so that we can turn our attention upon our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We have come, as it were, as families so that our families can take the time that we have been given in this week's time, in this special place of, and setting of quietude to come and to begin to deal and to work and to begin to see and to apply the truths of God that He's been teaching us. And we've been given the benefit and the opportunity of good teaching and good fellowship with which to apply ourselves and to give ourselves uh, that benefit. Most of us have only the Lord's Day to really spend any kind of a time in the meditation of God's Word because of our jobs, because of the different things that we are called to week by week. We realize and we begin to understand that it is such a difficult thing to really separate yourself, as it were, to study and to grow in grace. And yet we know how important it is. We've heard over and over again in our lectures and in the preaching times about the doctrine of sanctification, about growing in grace. Mark spoke to us and told us about putting off and putting on and how important it was for us to grow because as we have been regenerated by the Spirit of God, as He has begun to work in our lives, He is sanctifying us. It was more than just simply God calling us out of sin and the penalty of sin, but the work of God's Spirit is to call us forward away from the presence and the power of sin which has been broken in our lives. So that we become more holy. So that we become more God-centered in our thinking. That our emotions and our affection and even our very bodies be brought to glorify and praise our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But for us to grow in grace in such a way, it is essential that self-examination be a part of our everyday living. You cannot expect to grow in grace without knowing yourself as an individual. You need to know exactly where you are and you need to know where God wants you to be. And you need to apply yourself and examine yourself on a daily basis as to what my progress from point A to point B is. And as we run into obstacles, as we run through all those different valleys and mountains in that process of sanctification, we need to know ourselves. We need to know exactly what it is that we're facing and how we will do in the midst of that. But even as it is essential for our growth in grace to have self-examination, so it is also essential and required that we make an effort for change. We don't simply change automatically. We don't change, as it were, by osmosis. 
We don't simply stand next to other Christians and imbibe that holiness into ourselves. We have to make an effort to change. The Scripture says unto us, Thereby if ye by the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the flesh, ye shall live. And that calls for effort. There is an effort on the part of Christians to change. So we need to know who we are, we need to know where we're supposed to be, and we need to make an effort to change, to grow in grace. Now one of the mistakes that we often make in the church is to think that sanctification or this growth in grace only applies to individuals. As if somehow that we as... Uh, Bob Needham is always reminding us we've imbibed that American spirit of independence that we think that all of grace just applies to the individual. Just that doctrine of sanctification just applies to me as I change in my everyday life. But that's not so. The Scripture teaches us that there are churches... Groups of people that have been called into a local manifestation that are to be sanctified. Do you know that your church bears a character? It has a personality. It gives itself to different kinds of habits. And churches need to be sanctified. Your elders and your pastors work in that church and they labor amongst God's people examining the body, causing it to go in certain directions, endeavoring by the Spirit of God to lead it and to bring it to that place where it is glorifying to the Lord. And strong churches in this context are made up of strong families. And families also need to be sanctified. We sometimes think that if you have sanctified people in a family, that automatically the family will be sanctified. And it's not true. It's not true. And a classic example of that, as we would read in the Scriptures, is David himself. If we read about the life of David, and who of us doesn't want to emulate David in their lives? I tell you, I read in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, where David is described as a man after God's own heart. And that's got to move you because if you think about it, what would be a greater thing for God to tell you or to speak to you concerning you when you went to heaven to simply say, there is a man or a woman after my own heart. If God said nothing else when you stood before Him, there is a man after my own heart. There is a woman who sought to think my thoughts after me. And who but David exemplifies such a character? We read through the Psalms and we begin to read in in the uh, Old Testament histories about David and the great exploits that he did and the heart that he had for God and we are overwhelmed. Lord, create in me that kind of a heart. Give unto me that kind of a desire and longing and yearning after Jesus Christ. But you know, you start reading in the histories there, especially in 2 Samuel and beginning of 1 Kings, and you read about David's family and you say, Lord, what in the world went wrong? David had a wretched family. You start reading about his children and his wives in the, fa- in the, in the Scriptures, how they mocked him as one as he danced before the Lord. And Michael mocked him and said, What manner of fool are you that you would go and dance in public? And David gave his heart and said, But I danced before the Lord. 
And then he has a son who goes and turns around and rapes a daughter. And the interesting thing is you read the story about that rape that the son, Abnon, actually asked David to send the sister. Talk about someone who didn't know his family very well. Oh, sure, that's okay. So he sends the sister along and the son rapes her. And then there's Absalom. Absalom comes along and kills one of his other brothers for the sin that he's committed. But then eventually, as David brings him back into the city, what does he do? He drives David out of the city, takes all of his concubines and commits all manner of reproach with them. And then David has to have and make war against his own son. And he dies. And though David's broken heart is, he would say, Oh, Absalom, Absalom, son of my loins. But then even later, 1 Kings chapter 1 talks about Adonijah. He becomes jealous because Solomon's going to get anointed king and calls all the rest of the people together and tries to start another rebellion. Solomon's mother gets all upset and says, Bathsheba says, oh no, what are we going to do? The prophet comes in and says, listen, this is the way to take care of this. You go to David, you begin to tell him this, I'll come in and confirm it. And they go through this big process. All of this is in David's family. Families need to be sanctified and it just simply does not come from individuals in the family being sanctified. And that's what we want to deal with this evening. How is it that we, by the grace of God, can see the sanctifying work of God in our families so that we are not only growing individually in our lives, but we are also growing in our families? we must have what I call a family checkup. We need to know where our families are, we need to know where our families are going, and we need to apply ourselves and to make the effort for change that our families begin to be sanctified in the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Okay? The first thing that I want to say about a family checkup in this context as we begin to uh, deal with this is that the checkup must be honest. If you are going to give yourself to this labor of looking to see your family sanctified, you've got to be honest with yourself and with your family. If I went to Dr. Sanchez over here because I had some ailment with my foot, and I went into his office and he looked at my foot and it was really bad, but because... He's a friend of mine and in the OPC with me didn't want to tell me how really wretched my foot was and then just kind of played it down and said, you know, it's really not as bad as, as it might appear to look. And then suddenly later, because he wasn't honest with me, because he didn't really tell me the danger, I wouldn't be one who gave very much credibility to Dr. Sanchez after that. In that same way, if you are going to deal in your family... Make it a commitment before God, each and every one of us, that we will be honest before Him, that we won't be afraid of what we see, but by the grace of God we will accept what we are, and by the grace of God we will make that effort to change. A second thing that we need to realize is that a family checkup must be often. Now, I have this particular dislike of dentists. 
and which is very interesting because my father-in-law happens to be an oral surgeon. My wife spent years and years as a dental assistant in all kinds of different dentist offices. And every time I go to the dentist, I get this lecture about how frequently we're supposed to come for a checkup because of the major gum diseases that could take place, because of cavities that could make you lose the whole of teeth and everything. And it just is so difficult for me to say, boy, but you know, going every four months, every six months to the dentist when my teeth don't hurt, my gums don't bleed, I don't look, I look in the mirror, I don't see any black spots that look like cavities, and yet the necessity to go. Now, my oldest son just had the experience. I've been, he follows me more than he follows his mother, so it's been quite some time since he's been to the dentist and he just went and Kathleen had called him up and said, Matt, you really need to go to the dentist. But mom, my gums don't bleed, my teeth don't hurt, I don't see any little black holes in them. She says, Matthew, you got to go. You need to go. Well, he goes and he has an x-ray taken basically finds out that way up inside of his gum, and this is part of some birth defect we think uh, that was there that goes along with uh, some of his congenital problems, he's got some major root damage that if he'd have gone sooner might have been detected and would save him a whole lot of extra work that he's going to go through now. It's the same thing in the family. It must be frequent because it is much easier to do preventative work in our families than it is to do restorative work in our families. And lastly, it must be in depth. We must not be afraid to look under every stone. Not surface things. So many times I go to visit families in my church or talk to individuals and I will ask them how their family is doing and they'll say something along the line of, oh, everything's going well. It's going all right. And they want to leave it right there. And I have to start probing a little bit. Oh, okay. Well, your children's devotions, how are they going? Oh, they're going fine, Pastor. Okay. Well, what are they reading? You mean like what book of the Bible? Yeah, what book of the Bible are they reading? Well, gee, I don't know, Pastor. I haven't asked them lately. You haven't? Okay. Well, what kind of Christian literature are they reading? Uh, I, are you supposed to ask them questions like that? What kind of literature are you reading? Well, gee, Pastor, I don't let them watch certain kinds of things on television. Well, that's good. I'm glad to hear that you haven't given your children to the Cyclops. But what kind of material do they read? What are they occupying their minds with? What dominates their conversation? When they're together with their friends, do you have any idea what's going on in their little hearts and lives? We need to be willing to in-depth probe our families to find out really where they are spiritually. What are the kind of things we look for then as we begin to probe? I'm going to talk about four negative things and then four positive things. First of all, negatively, we need to look for in our families for a critical spirit. A critical spirit. That spirit that constantly is in the process of criticizing everything that it comes into contact with. Nothing is right. Parents can't do right things. Children can't do right things. Always doing the wrong thing. No matter how hard a child tries to do something, it is no good. 
No matter what he has set his hand to do, it is not enough. It is not the right thing. I know of a parent one time who had a young man who played on a football team, very gifted young man, played quarterback, went out as a quarterback in a particular game, threw a couple of touchdown passes, ran in a touchdown for himself, intercepted a ball as he played in a small school and played on defense also, intercepted a ball. The game was tied up. And the very last quarter, just a few seconds in the last quarter, they have the ball, they're going in to take it in line. This young man takes it, passes it, intercepted the guy, runs for a touchdown. The father comes running out on the field and said, I knew you were going to do that. I knew it. You never do anything right. This kid nearly single-handedly won the football game himself, but all the father could see was, you threw an interception that lost you the game. You are worthless. You are no good. You'll never make it in life. Well, you know, these two people, this man and this son, have not spoken words in over ten years. And you walk into the presence of either one of them, and the only thing they have is to say is to criticize. Oh, yeah, you know, he did this to me. And oh, yeah, he did this to me. And oh, yeah, it was so bad. This constant criticizing. Nothing can be right. Parents, think about it. Listen to yourselves. What do you do with your children? Is there a critical spirit? Children, think about it. What do you do with your parents? Oh, I wish my parents were like so-and-so because if my parents were like this set of parents, boy, life would be great. We criticize. But it doesn't stop just in the family, does it? The church is made up of families and that critical spirit comes and infiltrates the church. Church can't do anything right. The elders can't do anything right. It's never the right sermon. It's never the right amount of time. It's never at the right this or never at the right that. There's this constant criticism. Sometimes you ask yourself the question, you want to ask them, is there anything I can do? It will destroy a family if it goes unchecked. That critical spirit is like a canker worm that will eat the heart out of your family if it's allowed to continue. A second thing that we need to look for and to examine our families about is a selfish spirit. Not only a critical spirit, but a selfish spirit. And I'm not talking about just individuals in the family. I'm talking about the whole personality of the family that becomes selfish. What's in it for us? That discord, that fighting, that rudeness, that lack of consideration that always grows out of this selfish spirit. Now we see that especially again as families begin to look at churches. What's in it for me? What will I get out of this? What will my family derive? Now there's a measure of truth in um, individual family going to a church and knowing and discerning whether or not the needs, the true spiritual needs of a family will be met. Is there the right administration of the sacraments? Is there the right preaching of the Word of God? Are the elders laboring to shepherd the flock of Jesus Christ? Those are legitimate concerns. But often what comes from this selfish kind of spirit is this idea of, what is it in it for me? What's going to make me and my family feel good? Do they have the right amount of volleyball games? 
Does the sermon only go for so long so that we won't become overtaxed by sitting in the pew too long? Do they sing the right kind of songs, the kind we like in our family? All of that kind of selfish spirit that comes that will not accept that which is not pleasing to them. And so there's discord and there's fighting. And you see that kind of bickering that goes on in that family, back and forth, and trying to do what's best for individual in the family or that family as it relates to the church. A third thing I think we need to begin to examine our families concerning as we would grow in God's grace is what I call a materialistic spirit. We've heard it alluded to earlier in some of the lectures that we've had brought to us, that idea of, you know, getting and gaining for myself or for my family. That kind of spirit that begins to manifest itself in comparing, comparing what I've got to that which someone else has. That manifests itself in an envying within the family, within, in terms of jealousy and often verbally manifests itself in complaining, complaining that I've only got this kind of shorts instead of those kinds of shorts, that my tennis shoes are the cheap ones and his tennis shoes are the expensive ones. That kind of manifestation of wanting to be the best dressed, wanting to be, as it were, living in the best quarters, that anti, that spirit that is against self-denial, Christian self-denial, that constantly consumes all that it has on itself. And you see that manifested in the churches, in families and churches, because the church becomes so inclusive and looking to itself. Oh, we see it in evangelical Christianity today, don't we? That lack of sanctification and what we see is these huge pillar monstrosities called steeples being built up with giant crosses on top and people boasting and bragging about having all of these great organs with 5,000 different pipes and you need three guys to play it and the organ is so expensive you can't even talk about it but the maintenance policy is a million dollars and our church has got all kinds of beautiful glass all of these great ornate pictures, and we stand out as it were. Yeah, you stand out all right. You stand out as a symbol of the materialistic consumption of this world that infiltrates the church, and it affects our families. It's difficult when we recognize our children go off to school and they come home and they've imbibed it and they bring it into the family. And as parents, we often get caught up in it. Well, Dad, this is what they're wearing and this is the style and this is the way and we've got to do it. Listen, I know the temptation. I live right in the middle of Yuppieville. And everybody in the neighborhood, it's like a wildfire. Somebody gets a new car and you can see it just going right down the street. Everybody buying their new cars. Kids come out, they all have their little Christmas list and everybody's list. It's, oh yeah, that's what you're writing on their little list and away they go. And we feed that and we carry that on and we must put a stop to it. And lastly, in this area of negative, is a godlessness that exists. And what I mean by that is behaving as if God is not around. Sit around and we look and we watch our families. You know, it's interesting to me. 
You watch how your children behave when you're around. You watch how your wife behaves when you're around. You watch how you behave when your wife's around. Either one of those leave. The mother, the father, you all leave. And then watch the difference in the way you behave because there's nobody watching you. Nobody there to be answering to or to be telling you that what you're doing is right or wrong. And then in our families, living in such a way as if God is not ever present with us. How often we think, oh, I can't do that because somebody's going to be around. I can't speak a certain way because somebody's come that I don't want to hear me and to hear what I have to say. I won't behave in a certain way because someone's here that will see me and I don't want them to see how I will behave. When God is with us always, that is a practical atheism that we have allowed to infiltrate our families. As if we think to them that the only time that, or teach them that the only time that God sees them is when they're sitting in church on the Lord's Day morning and no other time. And we need to begin to check and to look and to probe our families and to ask the serious and hard questions and to know exactly where they lie. Positively, what we want to look for is what I've called a dynamic interaction in families. What I mean by that is simply what the Scripture refers to as esteeming one another better than ourselves. We live in a world of constant put-down. I remember as a young boy growing up where we used to have this dynamic that went on in our family between my parents and the children and between the siblings and even between my mother and father where there was this constant this, uh, array of battering that said, how low can I chop you? And we used to even say it in my, uh, in my, among my brothers and sisters. We'd say, chopped you? Boy, I cut you off at the knees. You know, this constant, boy, I really got to you with that one. And I'm not saying that what we did this morning is wrong, but even Mr. Needham, as he stood here and somebody made the comment, and he kind of went, one for you. And we tend to sit back and say, oh, good, one for me. See if I can get another one. But positively, what we should be looking for in our families is that dynamic inter interaction which doesn't seek to put one another down but seeks to lift one another up and to esteem them better than yourselves. We need to seek not to be the high man on the totem pole but to be the low man on the bottom. We used to play that game when, or that uh, choosing up teams in baseball where you would throw the bats and you would catch it and the one guy and their hands would go up until they topped on the top. We need to reverse all of that. It's not getting on the top, it's getting on the bottom. Teaching our families that we interact in such a way, with such a dynamic that we esteem one another better than ourselves and that we truly learn to rejoice when they excel and when they are used by God for blessing. Loving concern, secondly, for others. Do we really have a loving concern for one another? In a family, do we really have that dynamic that's taking place that when one of us hurts, all of us hurt? When one of us is joyful, all of us are joyful. When one is excited, all of us are excited. When one is there and, and having that, 
you know, whatever emotional situation or trial or tribulation or joy and abounding that they're going through, that as a family we share that joy. That we learn to rejoice with one another, that we learn to weep with one another. And it's not just a matter of we know a little bit more information about them and what they go through. Sometimes that's the only concern that seems to exist before fam- in families. The only thing that makes it beneficial in one sense for me to live in a family is I know a little bit more about you and what you go through than I do my next door neighbor. I don't experience any more. I don't understand any more of your concerns, but yet learning by the grace of God and probing us and pleading with the God of grace that He would give us a loving concern one for another in our families. Thirdly, having a spiritual mindedness. God cut me to the quick one time on this. It's interesting. The other day, or yesterday I guess it was, and brought this particular illustration to mind, somebody came up to my wife and, and introduced themselves, and my wife introduced herself, and she said, I guess she said something along the lines, oh, you're part of the sports family because of all of our involvement here at camp with the volleyball and the basketball and all that kind of stuff. And I was thinking of a situation that happened to me one time where my oldest son is a walking baseball encyclopedia. He was born physically blind, so he's not able to play baseball, which uh, basically is still pretty much his favorite sport. He's been an avid baseball card collector and has encyclopedias of nothing but data and spends hours reading this data. And a preacher came to visit our church, an individual, a missionary that our church supported, and he preached a really dynamic sermon. And my oldest son went up to him and and, uh, he introduced himself. And this preacher said, oh, I've heard a lot about you. I understand that uh, you're quite a baseball fanatic. And Matthew said, yeah, well, I like the game. And he started asking Matthew some questions and going on and on about different things. And and uh, Matthew's answering these questions, and then he says, uh, well, uh, let me ask you something. And, and Matthew says, okay, he says, what do you think about so-and-so playing for this team? And Matthew says, oh, well, this guy doesn't play for that team. And the guy says, oh, yes, he does. He plays for this team. And Matthew says, oh, no, he, no, he doesn't. And the guy says, well, he's been playing. I've been an avid follower of this guy on this team for all these years. He says, he plays on this team, plays first base. And Matt says, I'm sorry, sir, you're wrong. Three days ago, he got traded to such and such a team, and they took these three guys and traded him over there and took these other two guys and traded them over there, and there's this big trade. Tells the guy all about it, and the guy says, wow, that's really amazing. And he looked my son in the eyes, who was about 11 years old at the time. He said, can you tell me the books of the Old Testament? I'm the pastor of the church. Matthew says, well, let's see. I know the first five. I even know who wrote them. He says, well, tell me the rest. Well, I don't know. Well, tell me the books of the New Testament. Well, gee, there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I know those. And he began to ask Matthew some questions, and I was standing there turning redder and redder and redder. And then he looks straight into my son's eyes, and he says, how much time do you spend on spiritual things? Now, here's a man that had just met my son for a short period of time, but because he knew about the amount of time that he had to spend to know the knowledge in baseball that he had, 
he was spending very little time knowing the things of God. This man saw through something that I hadn't learned to see yet in my own family's sanctification. And here we were as parents encouraging him. Go, do this, Matthew. This is a great way for you to get out all of that ambition you have for baseball, all of that desire that's pent up in you because you can't play, and encouraging him. And we had encouraged him all the way to the detriment of his own spiritual learning. A spiritual mindedness. It's not wrong for us to apply ourselves to any one of those kinds of things that are sanctioned and allowable according to the Word of God. But when they become the dominant factor in, in our lives and they eclipse, as it were, our spiritual minds and mindedness so that we are not involved in thinking on those things which are lovely and just and holy and true, there is something radically wrong with our families. We must be spiritual minded. And lastly, that godliness in the family. That godliness that comes about by in recognizing that God is always with us. That when you sit down to eat, your children and your parents don't simply say there's five in our family, but there is always the Lord who sits at the table with you. God is always there in the midst of you and you live and you work and you breathe and you sleep and you think in the presence of the triune God who is always in our midst. They say concerning Bunyan that if you pricked him anywhere on his body that he wouldn't spill blood but he would spill the Bible. He was so saturated with the Word of God in his life that every ounce of his being oozed the Scripture. Are our families so saturated with the presence of God that when someone walks into the midst of our family that they walk out and they say, God was really in that place? The Scripture says that we must, by the grace of God, learn to check up on our families. How do we do that? Well, first of all, I believe that as families we need to learn to participate together in the means of grace. As families, we need to learn to participate together in the means of grace. It's all right here at family camp, I think, because this is not our normal worship. This is not when we're gathering together as the people of God and we see all the kids sitting in the back rows back there and parents sitting on this side of the room and kind of spread out because we've come together in a special way. But parents, as a pastor, and what I try to encourage in my own church is that when families come to worship together, they come as families together and they sit together and they worship God together and they hear together. And in their hearing as a family, they probe one another together, talking about the sermon, understanding the sermon, our shorter catechism and our larger catechism teach us about how to prepare ourselves to go to the Lord's table. And how many of us as families prepare as families for the Lord's table? I hope that most of us, if I was to ask the question, 
that most of us would raise our hand and say, yes, I prepare to go to the Lord's table. I examine myself. I make sure that I don't have aught against my neighbor. I make sure that there's no unconfessed sin in my life, that I won't be profaning the body of Christ. I seriously consider once again my call to obedience as I come to the Lord's table. I hope that most of us or every one of us in this room would raise their hand and say, yes, before I go to the Lord's table, not the two minutes while the pastor is you know, talking about it or introducing the table, but before I come as the confessions and as our catechisms tell us. But I would wonder how many of us would say, really, our families prepare for the Lord's table as a family. Because we're called to the table as family. God has made covenant with us as families. He's called us to His table as the families of God as we are to come preparing ourselves as families, availing ourselves of the means of grace. As families, seeing and looking as to how we have profited from those means of grace as a family. How we have been strengthened when we come home. And many of us do this. We come home on the Lord's Day afternoon and we are very strong on the Sabbath. We don't work. We don't do those things. But we go home, we eat our food, and we take our naps. And then we wake up in time for the Lord's day to be over and we go about our way. Instead of coming together as our families and making sure that as a family we have profited from the Word of God that was preached to us. What did God teach me as an individual, but what did God teach me as a family? God's given us the whole day. How can we grow in grace? Secondly, the how-to is to focus on specifics. One of the things that we often make mistakes in doing is we try to fell the whole forest instead of taking it down a tree at a time. We run around. If someone was to come to us and say, okay, you have one day. See what you can do on these trees around here. And we go five minutes on this tree and five minutes on this tree and five minutes on this one and running around. We run. We try to hit all of the trees. We get all done. He goes and says, not one of them's down. You've spent the whole day. Every tree's got a little bit of a cut in it, but not one of them is laying on the ground. Learn to focus on specifics. Take a tree at a time. As you, by the grace of God, come to identify whether these negative things or the lack of these positive things in your life, then go and take them and work and concentrate on them and be focused and specific in your endeavor. Make it clear to one another as you labor to say, this is what we as a family, by the grace of God, are working on. We are going to get rid of this critical spirit by the grace of God. And we are going to focus our attention and we are going to help one another, reminding one another and encouraging one another to lay that kind of a spirit aside. And then lastly, we must seek help from others. The Word of God says that God has been pleased to give us the body of Christ to help us in our growth. And I'm just speaking to you, and most of you aren't members of my congregation, so I have a little bit more freedom because I'm not worrying about you coming to speak to me, but you going to your own pastors, the elders in your church, seeking the wisdom and the help that God has been pleased to give in those men to help you in these areas. Seeking that help, not being afraid 
that if you say to the pastor, you know, pastor, we are really struggling in our family. We've got a critical spirit. We've got a selfish spirit. We don't know how to get rid of it. We need guidance. We need help. Oh, boy. But if I tell the pastor that, he's going to think that we're not very spiritual. He's going to think that we're not as good as we appear to be amongst everyone else. He's going to think that there's something wrong with us. Well, there's something wrong with all of us. We all have sin, and we all need to deal with our sin, and God's been pleased to give us individuals to help us deal with that sin and to see it eradicated out of our lives. God's been pleased to grant them with some grace and some wisdom and some direction and some stamina to help you glorify Him in your families. And those men are on their knees constantly before God pleading for your souls. I would venture to say that there's probably not a man in here who is called to the eldership that has not laid on his face, prostrate, weeping before God for each and every one of you in the church of Jesus Christ. That He has poured out His life and all that He is that you might prosper. And that great blessing that God has given seems to just be set aside. No, I don't need to go benefit from that which God has given. And then you know what happens? You know what breaks your pastor's heart? As your young people will grow up and in their teenage years they'll be walking out the door and they'll be rebellious and your family will be disintegrating and you'll come and you'll look him in the eye and you'll say, Pastor, I don't know what went wrong. I did everything I could. And you know what? Sometimes I need to just look them back in the eye and say, but you never ever came and talked to me, did you? Have you spoken to the elders at all through the years? Have you sought counsel and help through the years? What benefit will you derive from following this method? Well, the scripture is very clear here, and it's interesting to me. These two particular psalms, Psalm 127 and Psalm 128, are written by Solomon. They're called Songs of Ascent. What they mean by a song of ascent is these are two songs that were written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to be sung by the people of God in those yearly festival times when they were called to go to Jerusalem. When they were marching down the road on their way to Jerusalem, as they were gathering together for those Old Testament feasts that God had called the men of Israel to come to the city so many times a year to celebrate, they would sing these songs. Now here's Solomon, the son of David, who has seen the wreck in his own family, inspired by God to say, first of all, except Jehovah build the house, they labor in vain that build it. If God's not working in the midst of building this family, you're wasting your time. But then in 128 he says, But blessed is everyone that fears Jehovah, for thou shalt eat the labor of your hands. God is gracious. There's a prophecy in the book of Joel where Joel is prophesying to the children of Israel. And God has sent a plague upon that 
nation and they have dis- uh, a plague of locusts and they have destroyed the whole of the crops. My wife and I and children one time were coming across Colorado and as we came across we got hit by a hailstorm. The wind was blowing so hard that the hail was not falling down, it was blowing straight across. It was just pelting one side of the car. We pulled over the road. We couldn't see anything. My kids were screaming in the back seat, we're going to die, we're going to die. Daddy, this, it's somebody's throwing rocks at us and I'm trying to explain to them it's hail, it's going to go away, it's not going to kill us. Can't get through the hood of the car. It gets all done. It was so misty and cloudy out, you couldn't see anything, but it gets all done. And we looked over and we were parked next to a, a cornfield that when we pulled the car over, it was about six or seven feet high when the hail stopped, it looked like somebody had run a lawnmower over it. There was nothing left. Completely destroyed. God sent a plague of locusts on the children of Israel and it had destroyed the crops. And then Joel comes and prophesies and says, God will restore that which the locusts have eaten. The scripture says, you will eat of the labor of your hands. God's blessing the scripture says to us, is that you will benefit, your families will grow in God's grace. They will be sanctified. They will be families that grow up to honor and glorify His blessed and holy name. He goes on to say, your wife shall be fruitful in the innermost part of the house. She'll prosper. It tells us that our children will be as olive plants around our table, that God's blessing will rest in that home. That does not necessarily mean that the Scripture is telling us that every one of our children will be saved or that all of our troubles or trials or all of that kind of thing will uh, dissipate, but it tells us that we as a family will prosper under the hand of God because God's blessing will be there. You seek to build your house on your own and there will be no house standing. But you seek by the grace of God to walk in the way of the Spirit of God and the sanctifying work of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ. There will be a family that will bring much praise and honor and glory to God. My prayer for you, members of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church in this Presbytery of Southern California, as a pastor of one of these congregations, as I labor in this particular portion of the vineyard that God has been pleased to put us in, is that we as a group and as a people would become such a powerful testimony to the saving work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that when people come in contact with our families, they will come away saying, God is in the midst of them. Praise the name of the Lord. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we give you all the glory and the praise for who and what we are. The work that you have done in our families, Lord, is beyond our wildest imaginations and undeserved. But you have been pleased in your grace and by your mercy to save us and call us to yourself. Father, as we have learned the truths that you have been pleased to teach us this week, May we glorify your name in seeing them worked out in our hearts and in our lives. May our families, O Lord, truly be a praise unto the name of Jesus Christ. May we see your work among us, O Lord, 
And may we bring much glory and praise to your name. For this we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.